0: Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa, so glad you're here with us today. We're gonna be pulling ideas from around the world and anchoring them here at home. And home is where we're going to start. Remember just a year ago this time, people were lining up by the thousands and waiting hours to get food at Aloha Stadium. Across the state, food banks and pantries were buying tons of food to deal with the increase in need. Assistant Professor Albie Miles teaches sustainable community food systems at UH West Oahu. He's looked at lessons learned from COVID. You may have to listen closely. He's giving you every reason to prepare that two week supply of non-perishables.
1: In terms of the elevation or the increase rates of household food insecurity, that is people not having enough uh, food to eat on a regular basis, That was principally caused by a contraction in the economy. People lost their jobs as a result of the forced social distancing.
0: So it was lack of money, not lack of food.
1: That's absolutely right. And that is parallel to a history of food insecurity across the nation and even hunger around the world. We produce enough food for everybody.
0: That's almost worse news, Albie, because... It's an economic system that you're talking about that needs to change, or what?
1: It is. It's fundamentally about the the economic and public policy environment in which we live. Food insecurity is simply a matter of, do we pay people enough to afford adequate amounts of food? Low-income earners in Hawaii don't make a living wage, and therefore we should expect food insecurity. We should expect houselessness. We should expect people not being able to meet their basic needs. And in times of crises, then those rates of food insecurity are going to skyrocket just as we saw in COVID-19. And I'll just mention one important fact is a study out of UH Manoa published earlier this year has shown that 48% of households with children are experiencing food insecurity. 48% of households with children are experiencing food insecurity right now. That's an enormous number of people in our state who are struggling with basic needs insecurity. There's another issue at play. One of the issues that COVID-19 exposed is that our commodity chains that deliver community level food security are also potentially threatened as we go into a period of the likelihood of increased frequency and severity of extreme weather events.
0: Translate that for me, though, Albie. What you're saying is that the way average people get their food could be very affected by the way things are.
1: That's right. So we have kind of a background level of food insecurity in the state. We have about a, an adjusted poverty level of about 14 percent. So that's as a background Then we have COVID-19 that has elevated the rate of food insecurity in the state. Then on top of that is the systemic vulnerability because of our overwhelming dependence on imported food and that imported food principally coming through the port of Honolulu. That is the key structural bottleneck in the system. And if that is interrupted in one way or another, then our flows of food and basically everything else comes to a screeching halt. The issue that has been raised by our colleagues in the emergency management agencies is that we don't store adequate amounts of food in state at the household level, the commercial level, or at the emergency management agency level. And so there's a whole series of compounding kind of systemic risks to household and community or state level food security in Hawaii.
0: I mean, did you see some of these essential players coming to the table through the COVID period?
1: There was a number of, I think, very, very important innovations that happened as a result of COVID-19. A lot of our local foundations responded incredibly well to the circumstances and started allocating funds to emergency feeding, to kind of longer term planning processes. There's a group of individuals called the Ag Hui. They've been working to take flows of money and matching that to some of the needs in our agricultural or producer community.
0: And what do you see in terms of the ag sector? Are there people who want to be farmers? And is there reasonably priced land ever going to be available?
1: Yes, there's a lot of people who would like to be farmers, but there's a lot of structural obstacles to their achieving economic viability as a farmer in the state of Hawaii, because we have very high production costs, basically some of the highest electricity, land, water, etc., costs anywhere in the nation. Our local farmers can be competitive, but it's gonna require some investment, it's gonna require some changes in public policy, and it's gonna importantly involve changes in the issue of access to land and affordable housing in the state of Hawaii, among others.
0: What are the ways that we're going to get to that nitty-gritty here? Actually getting the policies that support those issues, finding the people who want to invest in this way. How is that done?
1: Through what we're doing now. The initiative is called Transforming Hawaii's Food System Together to assess key elements of the food system of Hawaii and begin the process of a series of convenings that will help us articulate what we believe is a plan to achieve not only the UN sustainable development goals, but some of our local uh, sustainability targets.
0: What kind of backup food setup do you have, LB?
1: I just have a range of canned foods and dry goods in in my own house, Uh, certainly a two week supply. I think even simple measures, just to make sure that in the case of a natural disaster, You're really not dependent upon the state of Hawaii to feed you because I think that that is something that the state is not in a strong position to do.
0: Dr. Albie Miles is Assistant Professor of Sustainable Community Food Systems at UH West Oahu. He's a founding member of transforming Hawai'i's food systems together. This group lists key issues, immediate and long-term goals. There's an analysis of the local food system, lots of resources. We'll post a link with his story. Hurricane season starts in a few days, June 1st, and it has more of an edge these days than it used to, wouldn't you say? Our increasing hurricane vulnerability is yet another concern related to our changing climate. The New York Times has been conducting a special series on climate change, and the most recent webinar was titled, Can We Get to Net Zero with a Circular Economic Strategy? Ever heard of the term circular economy? it's increasingly seen as an essential to achieving the targets that we need to avert climate disaster. Now, in the Times webinar, columnist Andrew Sorkin began by discussing the international goal of cutting carbon emissions in half within a decade. He spoke with Gonzalo Munoz, high-level climate champion for the last UN climate conference in Chile. The question, how important is a circular economy to averting climate disaster.
2: This year, in this moment in history, circularity is more crucial than ever. We know that in order to move forward with circularity, we have to face challenges in the whole value change, and not only uh, downstream while increasing, let's say, recycling rate. It's about the whole system moving towards understanding that a circular economy is regenerative by principle. That means that in the next decade, we need to shift massive designs, change business models, of course, reduce trading of non-reusable or recyclable products, rethink about trading in many ways. And of course, as I said, position regeneration as a fundamental logic in the value creation. Do you think it's realistic to make it work in in under a decade? Well, the point there, Andrew, is that we don't have a choice. In this case we don't have an option when it comes to climate we need to reduce half of the emissions in the next decade it's not just about the technology it's about the human aspect of it we have to do it leaving no one behind we have to do it with the consideration of just transition and we have to do it while increasing our capacity of regenerating the ecosystem that gives lives to us and the other millions of species that live with us in this amazing planet. So we don't have an option, but we do have the knowledge and we do have the technology. How to scale it? I think that should be a lot related to on one side positioning the right incentives and I do expect not only public policies to move forward much more rapidly, but we're also seeing, for example, in the last weeks, how the global financial system aligned with a net zero and resilient world by 2050 the very latest with through gfans so there is something happening there that should help us align the incentives and now we have to put together those technological tools with the financial mechanisms and then there is a, a relevant expectation of the change of mindset with a new generation of young people joining universities and colleges all around the world. Let's call it like the greater generation that is now entering into the universities. Some of those people are, are already joining the workforce all around the world with the expectations that now everywhere where they're providing their talent and their hours and their efforts should match with their values as well. So I do expect that we can see How much of those two big elements, those two big forces, will somehow allow us to really speed up in this decade that is so crucial.
0: Gonzalo Munoz, high-level climate champion at the UN Conference of Parties in Chile, 2019. We're listening to curated excerpts from a New York Times series on climate change. The topic is, can we get to net zero with a circular economic strategy? To explain what a circular economy is, host Andrew Sorkin turned to Dame Ellen MacArthur, founder of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, devoted to accelerating the transition to a circular economy. A retired solo sailor, MacArthur set a speed record, circumnavigating the globe alone in a boat. She knows how to operate at a high level with finite resources.
3: If we continue on our current trajectory, We have a linear economy. We take a material out of the ground, we make something out of it and we throw it away. That cannot run in the long term with a growing world population and a growing economy because it's extractive and consumptive and pollutive. So what fascinated me was what can work in the long term. And that is simply taking that straight line and turning it into a circle. And that's a design challenge. That's not just the design of the product. That's how that product gets to us. It's how the manufacturer gets it back because they know everything that sits within it. So the business models change. And the business models even need to change when it comes to plastic packaging or sachets. We need to design everything to fit within a regenerative, restorative economy of the future. And that's worth a huge amount economically because we're not buying materials, selling products, but you're building this system.
0: Dame Helen MacArthur was asked what the biggest obstacle is to achieving a circular economy. She answered swiftly.
3: Mindset. Absolutely mindset. We've been educated through a linear education system, which has existed since the Industrial Revolution. We learned to take a material, make something, and we can design amazing things. We've proved we can pretty much design anything, but then what? And I think that's the question. When you start out on a journey to be a consumer or a user or a designer, What are we designing for? What system are we designing for? And I think there's such a massive opportunity if we can design that regenerative system so that the faster we do it, the better. This is about design, innovation, material science, business models, new financing models. This is about building a system that really can in the long term. And that's an exciting space to be in. There's a definite economic pull for many sectors to switch to circularity. You know, we've proved that through reports with McKinsey and other organizations. There's a massive economic value here. Um, But there's also the fact that policy can help to speed things up. So you have the pull the economic pull in a way you have the push from consumers saying we don't want this anymore. We need a system that works. And then we have that help from policy. You can't really do it without all three. This is not just a policy. pull. But I think what's vital is that we need to identify what we're trying to achieve. And if I said to you, we need to invest in sustainable products. What is one? How do you identify one? Let's just define where we're trying to get to. And then you'll find many, many, many companies who before would never have been invested, would now be invested in, because they can see that's part of a circular economy.
0: That was Dame Ellen MacArthur, advocate for transition to a circular economy. She was describing the opportunities for new products and industries in a circular model. Investment and rapid innovation are required to even think about the target UN officials describe – a 50% reduction in carbon emissions within a decade. In America, we expect our entrepreneurs to jump right in and start innovating, but considering the time constraints, how easy is it to fund the research we'll need for a circular economy? Miranda Wang is chief executive and co-founder of NovoLoop, a plastics reclamation company. Times host Andrew Sorkin asked her what kinds of policies might help speed her company's progress.
4: So I, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I have to say I haven't had a career before as a policymaker. But recently I did read a report talking about how there really is a gap for deep tech that are especially out there for climate and for circular economy. So when I say deep tech, I mean technologies that really need you can't you can't just do in your garage, right? You need an actual lab. You need to build actual equipment. And these types of technologies in the U.S., given that we have a completely market-driven climate, right, um, is is really hard to grow out because these types of companies go out to raise funding in markets where they're competing against software. And, you know, the scale-up for software is, is very straightforward, whereas scale-up for deep tech is not. So for policymakers, to enable people who have good technologies, but you know, where, where capital markets still have these gaps, um, I think there's a critical role to play, whether it's through directly funding or just creating environments where these investors are more comfortable and have greater protection potentially in, in providing that type of support. I specifically was very much in agreement with what Dame Ellen MacArthur was talking about regarding getting materials, especially talking about materials, getting that back into the economy. And for myself and what my company has been working on, we've been specifically focusing on how to get plastic waste, the stuff that's left over from existing mechanical recycling. You know, Right now, only about 9% or less of that is being recycled. So how do we take the rest of that and get it back into the economy? And the answers for that are really not that straightforward. There's a lot of talk about innovations are there, especially on the energy sector, but. When it comes to sophisticated technical materials like plastics, there's still a ways to go on the innovation. And so my company has been working on developing new technologies to take apart these plastics that really right now we don't have control over what goes into that. But we're sourcing plastics in as much of a consistent volume and quality as we can take it apart and we, we build high performance materials from that. For me, being at the intersection of innovation and now looking at this wave of interest coming in, it's something that, as a young person I'm very excited for, but I think there are also some major gaps in how the capital markets are structured in terms of how much more it could do to help move innovation along faster.
5: The phrase circular economy is still in its infancy in terms of something that that the public knows about or understands. If you go on Google Trends, it's just starting to be um, searched for, if you will, but very low level. So, my question to you is what year do you believe that the phrase circular economy will become
1: part of the zeitgeist? <laughs>
4: I think in today's day and age, everything is possible with social media. News spreads fast. I think we just need to get the right people talking about it. Like if we can get our president, Joe Biden, to talk about it, this is something that could be in the mainstream um, as soon as later this year, right?
0: (laughs) Miranda Wang is chief executive and co-founder of Novo Loop, a company focused on transforming plastics into high-performance materials. We've been listening to curated excerpts from a New York Times series on climate change. We'll post a link with this story.
1: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, following health guidelines, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kane'ohe. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com. Join HPR Saturday, May 29th, when Slot Key guitarist Jeff Peterson returns for a members-only virtual concert. The Grammy and Nahoku Hanohano Award winner will perform songs from his recent release Mele Nahe Nahe, plus music from his travels. Enjoy the magic of the Atherton Studio in your living room. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training.
0: Aloha Kako. Hope you're enjoying today's Aloha Aina edition of the Aloha Friday Conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa, and we're going to bring all those big global ideas home now. We understand the latest idea in averting climate disaster. A circular economy is an economy in which there's no waste. Now, this idea may be new to us, but think about it. People who lived on these islands for hundreds of years were probably operating in much the same way. UH professor Kamana Michaelani Beamer introduced me to the idea of a circular economy several years ago and spoke about it recently from his home in Waimea, Hawaii Island. When COVID hit, Beamer was among the founders of the Aina Aloha Economic Futures Initiative, which incorporates circular principles. The Aina Aloha Initiative has gotten a lot of buy-in from county governments, Kamehameha Schools, the Hawaii Tourism Authority, Hawaii Community Foundation, and 2,800 other organizations and individuals. I asked Beamer what broad support for ideas like this could mean for Hawaii.
5: What I do believe is that they saw a common set of values, you know, that we laid out that were grounded in these islands, our ancestral values. And I also believe that they saw the need for a more just and equitable economy. And I think they believe that this is an opportune time for actions towards that, that new economy and structure.
0: How can those actions
5: happen? We have a policy playbook that's available. It's up on our website. We send it to, you know, all policymakers in Hawaii. You can actually utilize our assessment tool and sort of score a particular proposal and project before you fund it or implement it. That's being used now by county governments across Hawaii. It's being used by organizations.
0: You're putting out some metrics so we can judge our progress. So (laughs) we can know our progress. So, So what kinds of things do you ask? What kind of metrics are these?
5: whether or not a project is, you know, benefiting the Aina, is it leading towards a circular economy, or is it more part of an extractive industry? Is the project really, you know, broadly supported by the community of that area? I think there's all of these ways and metrics that we can kind of look at and assess. We also put together legislation for uh, developing a circular economy task force. And that was really exciting. We got passed through the Senate. We made it all the way through the very last committee in the House. And it was quite unfortunate that we never got a hearing from that particular committee.
0: What were the objections or reservations you ran into?
5: That's what's entirely fascinating is there were no objections that were voiced publicly. Um, So You know, we had hundreds of community members testify, organizations, even students. That's another really powerful thing about this noise. I didn't anticipate the amount of high school and middle middle school students that are interested in circular economies, that are interested in Loha'aina, that are, you know, have found it, I guess, through YouTube and through our efforts and are now, you know, submitting testimonies to try to pass this. We haven't been able to get a clear answer as to why we didn't get a hearing that day.
0: (laughs) You know, it could be we're jumping people with a new idea here, circular economy. Tell us what it generally is and then how it could apply in Hawaii.
5: In Hawaii, sure. So globally, we recognize um, the old economy was built on this sort of linear model. You take resources from a place, you make something, and then it goes into waste. These natural precious elements we pull out of the earth become wasted you take that model and and you apply it over 200 years all across the world, extractive industries with the pollution that goes with it, and and it's brought us to this brink of climate crisis. So we want to eliminate the waste streams, and we want to do that by recycling. We want to reuse materials. We want to encourage companies to produce products that limit the amount of waste in packaging and so forth. The long-range goal is really to sort of decouple environmental degradation with job growth. We want jobs, we want meaningful work, livable wages, but we don't want to plunder our planet while we're doing that.
0: Okay, help me with this. I just wonder how these ideas will come down into practice.
5: The economy from the bottom up is already starting. You know, you have in the midst of COVID because supply chains, you know, had kind of broken down and there were other ways for consumers to get what they needed. So it's already happening really on the on the bottom-up scale. People are creative, you know, they're going to find ways to do it. What we try to do with Aina Aloha is to highlight that innovation that's already happening in our community. So I think the bottom-up is already happening. The top-down is is also what we need. We need policymakers to understand that we need drastic changes to our economic system and, and business as usual does not work for our islands. So some of the top-down policies that we could have, Noe, I think, are, you know, looking at food waste. So many people aren't completely satisfied with the way in which tourism has um and this is such a strange phrase reopened <laughs> and we can see that that's going to produce you know a tremendous amount of food waste now a top-down policy could be you know how do we incentivize taking that food waste and getting it processed to make agricultural products to make organic mulch and resource materials that we can feed back into these farms that produce <laughs> the csa boxes that go to our communities I think that's one of the things that a circular economy approach can really benefit our islands is not seeing these economic um, systems in silos, you know, so the waste from tourism could potentially go into organic agriculture if we think about it properly. So I think we see them flooding back now that it's starting to come back.
0: Seriously. Do you think there is a chance that it's going to come back differently
5: i have yes i do i think there's a chance and i think we have to keep working towards it i i do you know getting back to maybe why our particular <laughs> um policy measure wasn't heard by a committee changing the status quo is never easy and um i do think there are people in in business that want to do this also it's not you know i, I it's not Good guys versus bad guys you know it, it's a lot more complicated and nuanced and so i think we just really have to hold policymakers um, that are in key positions accountable to to try something different yeah and to hear our voices um,
0: making this work economically is going to be key you say change is tough and yes it is um, but you know when you talk about an extractive economy up until this point, I mean, that's what capitalism has been all about. You're talking about pretty profound change here.
5: Yeah, yeah. I recognize um, this is pretty profound and substantial change. But tools like a circular economy approach actually are carrots towards refining capitalism. And and the thing about it that we know is capitalism prior, unfettered, you know, unregulated has really brought our, our planet to the brink of collapse. So the United Nations is very clear that we have to do things differently. Trying to push uh, local policymakers that are embedded in a two-year or four-year election cycle, <laughs> it's harder for them to see the reasons to make these long-term changes if they're only focused on getting reelected. And I think maybe we need to talk about that. And the beauty is our community is so inspired and leading this, this effort. I could say for all of us 14, I don't think anyone anticipated it would grow this exponentially that we would get coverage in national and international papers, buy in from large organizations all across Hawaii, as well as some of our most, you know, rooted community activists that have been working on these issues for generations. I mean, that is success in itself. With this policy playbook, if you take a look at that, we're going to put together a community playbook as well as an investing playbook to try to influence uh, our islands and the market. You know, the beauty of our group is we were doing this work before COVID. And now we have a unit that is uh, galvanized together that cares about our islands in the future. We have a lot of people with us. And so we're not going anywhere for a while. Yeah.
0: Kamana Michaelani Beamer is a professor at the Center for Hawaiian Studies at UH Manoa with a joint appointment in the Richardson School of Law and the Hawaii Nuiakea School of Hawaiian Knowledge. He's a co-founder of the Aina Aloha Economic Futures Initiative. Get closer to the Aina in Aloha Aina, which is usually translated as land or earth. And best of all, we'll think about it in song. A new collection of original songs is out, honoring Aloha Aina by celebrating successful outcomes in land disputes. We'll talk with Uilani Tanigawa Lum. No relation, sadly. She works as a post-JD legal fellow at the Kahuliau Center for Excellence in Native Hawaiian Law. As a student at the Richardson School, Tanikau alum helped farmers on Kauai organize the Waioli Valley taro hui. Some of the farms were on state land, there were complications, but today, Tanikau alum proudly points out the hui produces roughly 25% of Hawai'i's taro and
6: poi. The thing that inspired me so much about these farmers is when we talk to them about the various environmental conditions that they work up against, it's like feral pigs, flooding and and pests, all that kind of stuff. And then now in the face of this legal maze, we ask them, why do they do it? And they just say, well, who's going to do it? Because we got to. And that's, that's what was so inspiring to me, is they see the importance of it and they, they put their head down and they continue for generations. As a third year law student, sort of looking into my, my future legal career, this hard work and understated work ethic that they continue for generations. That's something that just really hit home for me. Let's turn to this song. I think when we all think about Aloha, you know we think about love for the land, for these farmers, farming kalo, cultivating kalo in a traditional manner is their expression of aloha'aina and their ohana's expression of aloha'aina and their community's expression of aloha'aina. So that's really the first line, ayayi ke aloha'aina. There, there at wai'oli is aloha aina and this fertile land that is there for the hui kalo, the, the group of kalo farmers in that small community.
0: Second stanza, where you talk about being united and steadfast to satisfaction?
6: Yeah, that is sort of a reference to our work as clinicians in 2019 when I took the class and we established their 501c3 uh, tax-exempt status, getting the farmers together and, and, you know, coming up with bylaws and articles of incorporation
0: you describe it as a picture gathered as small pebbles soft in yeah. sound but together strong and held close
6: yeah we went on a site visit to waioli to understand the area to be able to advocate for the hui adequately after our first day of a site visit i was just so inspired and and that night as i was taking a shower like these words just came to me i'm in no way a like talented hakumele or or composer but it was just so moving that these words kind of came to me really quickly within my shower I, it, it was pow the song was pow but there was just that one line there was a puka there so the next day on our second day of the site visit we went hiking up and one of the farmers was talking about ili ili those those small little pebbles when you pick one pebble up it's just a tiny little pebble and it can't I I wouldn't say that it does much, but in the context of what we're talking about, all those little ili 'ili together, it has the potential to redirect water. And so it plays like this really important role in how the water flows. So it was then it was just like the light bulb came on and that's these farmers, you know, they're humble, they're quiet, they work hard. Individually and collectively, they're they're really just kupa'a steadfast and they're a huge example for all of us across Hawaii especially for me as a then third-year law student. This melee is really this snapshot that takes me right back to that time, and it helps me remember. That's the cool part about, about mele and its utility in our everyday life. Tell us
0: about Money.
6: That particular verse was in reference to meeting with all of the farmers in addition to a number of stakeholders at the county, state, levels, representatives from all sorts of organizations, realizing the importance of their work, and um, sort of coming together to make sure that their work could continue. That specific place, Kianolani, was where that meeting sort of convened in 2018. That was where I I realized how grateful I was for that opportunity, for Kahuliao, the Center of Excellence in Native Hawaiian Law, to bring us all together and have a productive conversation with the community members who really know the place the best.
0: Kalihi vai for its fragrant flower, strung into a lei for the Lahui.
6: Yes, that's really an homage to my professor at the time, Professor Kapo Sprout. She's an incredible leader in in that specific community. That's where she grew up on the North Shore of Kauai. And so that's just really a mahalo to her. For her work, not only her impact on me as, as a third-year law student and now a young baby attorney, but the work that she does across her many hats. I wrote that with the appreciation that she is training and empowering students and community members. Her work has a direct impact in uplifting our broader lahui across Hawaii. So Hulia Mahi, the Hulia Mahi CD was really a collection of mele that documents stories, really like the story I just told about my my experience with the farmers of the Waioli Valley Terahui. Um, and Hulia Mahi means to act in unison and in great numbers. So the CD is a collection of sort of those success stories specifically as it pertains to the rule of law. So what's cool is that mele as a cultural practice encapsulate these stories these community wins if you will in mele form hopefully as these mele are sung they become acts of aloha aina remembering our relationship to land
0: Oli Ke Aloha Aina, performed by Kainani Kahaonaile. We spoke with the composer Uilani Tanigawalom about the new Hulia Mahi collection of songs for Aloha Aina. It's on Apple Music and other platforms. Proceeds from the collection benefit, the native Hawaiian Legal Corporation. <laughs> Educator, ethno-scientist, Kalei Nuhiva was born and raised on Maui. She's been studying and teaching about the Hawaiian lunar calendar for over 35 years. Nuuhiva lives now in Hilo, Hawaii. In 2015, she organized the first Pacific Wide Lunar Conference to identify lunar practices in the specific region and link observations to climate science. Her work is rooted in the practice of Kilo, the art of observation. I'm hoping the technique she's found can help us, Kilo, with all our senses and draw closer to the natural world. Nuhiva says plants, breezes, clouds are communicating with us all the time.
7: Fishermen notice it, farmers notice it, but what does someone like you and I do? You know, we're modern, we're out, we get in the car, we go to work. And when I go out in the environment, I don't even know where to start exactly so and that's how the five of us who got together sort of brainstormed together to figure out what to do and um i've been collecting information about the hawaiian lunar calendar for years Mm -hmm. and years and years so it was very simple to me it was very simple to me right away Uh, oh well let's let's start this way because what the moon makes us do is realize cycles And then from cycles, we see seasons. And then from seasons, we can see expected climate. And then we start to notice animal life, fish life, you know, and their cycles. What I quickly realized personally is that the environment, the aina, because that's how you can translate aina too, is just environment. doesn't just mean land. Yeah, it is constantly teaching us things. It's so patient. (laughs) It's continuously showing us. When plants are fruiting, when they're flowering, how do we identify those natural indicators so that we can start to understand what's happening around us a little better and then become in tune with it? There's this uh, saying in Hawaiian chants that says, Iola oi, Iola awe. If you thrive, I thrive. So if our environment is thriving, It's kind of a natural indicator of our own personal health and well-being, too, as well. Right. So if we read the signals now,
0: it's not looking too good, is it? It's not looking good. Yeah. So, but what can I do as an individual? We go into the outdoors. We want to observe. And it's just all coming at us at once. Right. But what you folks did in your wisdom, very clear about methods and exactly what to observe. You gave us a way in. I'm going to go out there tonight. Right. It's after the full moon, and I'm just going to be standing there and thinking, uh, 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 what do I do,
7: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, where do you start? So first off, what we do is we teach people about the Hawaiian lunar calendar. And, and we show them the 30 phases. And we do it through a very simple frame that was developed by Dr. Uh, Roxanne Stewart. She's worked with uh, young kids. And what she learned right away in the charter schools is when you tell kids to go outside and go and observe the environment, it's like, you know, everybody's fooling around. Nobody knows what to look at. She realized, okay, we have to give them a focal point And hence this frame that you see that I sent to you. Yes, thank you. you welcome to share with everyone if you would like. Like, because it is a tool and, uh, and easily, you know, you just print it off of your machine and then cut off the hole. And then what you do is you take that frame and you look up into the sky, whether it's daytime or nighttime. And then it shows you while you're looking through that little frame hole, you can check out which phase is it closest to and kind of get an idea of where, where we are in the cycle of the moon. Then, super and, fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's super fun and everybody can do it. It's real easy. Anybody from any yeah. age. What you start to understand is each of the lunar months, there's 12 lunar months, has its own environmental indicators that happen. The other thing we learned is you have to pick just one thing when you start to watch and observe. Mm-hmm. Like what? Like uh, you can pick a plant you know, or if you live by the ocean, you might want to, you know, say, watch the tides and and then start to correlate that with the moon. So you just pick one thing. Some people will pick an insect and that's all they look at. Some How do they
0: find it every day?
7: That's the thing. You have to make the effort to go outside and look. And you don't have to go to a special place. You just have to open your door or your window and just look, look and see what's going on. So, where are the bees? Maybe that's something you're interested in.
0: I see your procedure here. You do commit to going out to the same place daily and making an observation at about the same time. Yeah. And it's really helpful because you kind of give examples of, of things that we can observe, like what are you smelling? That's something that'd be easy to forget, you know? Can you hear the wind or the waves? yes. And yeah. even tasting things,
7: right? On Hawaii Island, I live in Hilo. Right? We oh, we can uh-huh. tell when the Kona winds are, are are blowing because we can taste the sulfur in the air.
0: You can yeah. smell them here, <laughs> or,
7: or you can smell it. Yeah, yeah. Or it would be the same if I was in the ocean or near the ocean. Mm-hmm. I would know waves are coming. I can taste the salt in the air. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Using all of your senses. The the practice is called Kilo. The actual practice it's called Kilo. It was a very important job, responsibility for many different practices in the old days to understand that. Because once you start to see trends, you're actually able to predict what's going to come because you've been observing them for, you know, multiple years, sometimes generations. And so you're able to pick out when cycles are happening because you see natural indicators that are out there.
0: In what small ways do you kind of adjust to moon, the moon phase cycle?
7: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, there's a lot of ways, but okay, this is going to sound silly, but when there are ole days, these are the uh, quarter moon phases, they're called ole because uh, in the environment, especially in the tides, they're not really high or really low, so they're kind of indifferent. And what's created in that indifference in the ocean are currents, which make it difficult for fishing. So these are the phases that no one goes out to fish because there's a lot of movement in the ocean. If you drop your line, it's going to go straight out. If If you drop a net, it's going to get all tied up on the reef. It's not a very productive time. And that's what the moon calendar teaches us is how to get the best productivity and the limited amount of effort. So least amount of effort, big, big productivity. So in an ole phase, it's more about maintaining what you have, the maintenance of your nets. And on the land, it's all, uh, there's a lot of indifferent uh, winds that'll come through. We adjust to that. So fishing and farming, it's really easy to see, right? Well, let's cross that over into our lives. And have you ever had days where you've hit every red light?
0: oh yeah or no phone call goes through for some reason
7: or you're intending to go to the bank but oh shucks you forgot your phone so you have to turn around and go and get your phone or and and it's just like out of the blue if you pay attention to those times more often than not they happen around the ole days well there's seven of them so it's it's easy to hit one of those right (laughs) one of those (laughs) days but but uh what what the ole days teach us is that you know there's time for rest there's time for just mulching so maybe you might not want to have a staff meeting on an ole phase (laughs) maybe you might not want to ask your boss for a raise that day yeah it's just being a little more aware that that would be an example of
0: that do you feel that you ever got yourself in tune with the moon phase calendar do you actually feel that way yeah i actually do What does it feel like? Describe it from the inside for us so we have something to go for, you know?
7: Okay. um, Papa Mao. Papa Mao Piailug from Satawal, the wayfinder, grandmaster, navigator. um, When he described himself and his connection to the stars, he described it himself in the middle and all these strings attached to all of the stars so he can tug on them and know where they are and what what they're doing and I feel that way about the moon and I'm sure everybody can sort of feel that way about the sun too but yeah that's how I feel about the moon because I've studied it so long (laughs) yeah it's not a hard thing to do though I think everybody can do that it's just about being disciplined and going out to see it over and over and over again and uh, making the effort it really is about making the effort i think it's empowering to people Uh, and then again when you study something the fear about that about climate change or about uh, you know what's happening is lessened and your sense of an ability to do something about it is what takes over instead and there's an appreciation for sure
0: Mahalo. Kale Nuhiva is an educator and ethnoscientist. The website, aimalama.org, is a resource for people who want to live in the season with natural cycles. If you'd like a copy of that moon frame chart that Kale described, drop us a line at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, we've been thinking about the aina in Aloha Aina all morning, and we'll close with pure aloha. It may have been a while since you've heard the voice of Mo Keale. Pure Hawaiian, Mo was born on Niihau in 1939 to a gifted musical family. Today, we remember his mentor and Hanai mother, Pilahi Paki. She was the author of the Aloha Spirit Principles that are now a part of our state statutes. When Pilahi Paki passed away, she retransferred her knowledge to her son, Mo Keale, devoted the rest of his life to living and being aloha through his
8: music. Every time I look at you, I just don't know what to do when I see you. Since you came into my life, such a change in me I can't explain. Ever since I met you While strolling through the park One sunny day It was love when I first saw you And this I really feel Down deep inside It's not often that I feel Since you came into my life
0: Oh gee mo Kale and that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Thank you so much for your company. (laughs) Anything on your mind after this? Call our Talkback line and leave us your comments. That's 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org and post comments on social media. We are there. Everything we did today will be on The Conversation page on the HPR website. All week long, The Conversation is a cuckoo thing, produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell SubiONO, Lillian Sang, and in the background, always, Bill Dorman. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808, I'm Noe Tanigawa, and we're off for the Memorial Day holiday. Join us Tuesday when Katherine Cruz picks up The Conversation. Until then, let's take care of each other, and happy Aloha Friday. Thank <music> you.